0: If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History magazine and BBC History Revealed. You may be familiar with the names of Watson and Crick, who've gone down in history for the discovery of DNA's double helix. But what about William Astbury? The name of this molecular biologist has fallen by the wayside. But Dr. Kirsten Hall, author of The Man in the Monkey Nut Coat, is keen to give Astbury his due. Speaking to Emily Griffith, Kirsten reveals how Asprey missed a vital chance to be associated with one of the major scientific revelations of the 20th century but forged a new discipline made pioneering steps in the field of x-ray crystallography and also wore a coat made of peanuts. Today we're going to be diving into the scientific tale of the man in the
1: monkey nut coats. Who was William Asprey?
2: William Asprey is he's somebody I always feel a little bit sorry for. I always think that if if William Asprey had been as good a comedian as he as he was a physicist, I think he might well have he might well have found himself sharing a Nobel Prize for one of the biggest scientific landmarks in the twentieth century the um the discovery of the DNA structure
1: Now, I'm sure we're going to cycle back to why his poor joke telling didn't quite get him a Nobel Prize. But let's start right at the very beginning. What can you tell us about William Asprey's life and personality? Who, what
2: was he like? So, um, one of his colleagues once memorably, memorably de- described him as being um, a man of—he's a man of many parts: a scientist, a scholar, a musician, a bon vivant, a humorist. In some ways, a swashbuckler. And, and you think, wow, that's uh, that's quite a CV. Another colleague fondly remembered. He was always boisterous to the end with every morning a Christmas morning. And you think, gosh, if if somebody was saying that about me when I've shuffled off this mortal coil, I I would be very happy. Um, I mean, he'd started from very, very humble beginnings. So he'd been born in 1898 in a place called Longton near Stoke, one of a very big family. The area he grew up in was described as an architecture of ovens and chimneys. For this, its atmosphere is as black as its mud it burns and smokes all night. Um, has been compared to hell. So he was probably quite pleased when he got out of there. Thanks largely to his mother, who she'd recognised his academic talents at an early age, encouraged him in that. Uh, he'd won a won a scholarship to local grammar school. Then he'd gone to uh, Jesus College, Cambridge, to read natural sciences. Um, and it was in it was while he was studying there he became really interested in um, crystals. And so when he, when he left Cambridge, he wanted to pursue that, that research even more. Uh, and there were, at that time, if you wanted to learn about crystals, there was one person to go to, uh, and that was a guy called a physicist, Sir William Bragg. Now, by the time Asprey joined him, Bragg it was already a Nobel Prize winner. 1915, Bragg had won the Nobel Prize in Physics with his son, Lawrence for their discovery that x-rays could reveal an awful lot more than just broken bones. What they had found was, I guess what's special about a crystal, if you think about, say, common table salt that you might put on your dinner, what's, what's special about that is that the atoms and molecules in a crystal are all lined up in nice, neat, orderly rows and columns. And a German physicist, Max von Laue, had found that when a beam of x-rays passes through a crystal like that, the x-rays get scattered in different directions. And that gives rise to a pattern of reinforced, interfered x-rays as they emerge out of the uh, crystal. And you can actually see that pattern. It forms a very precise pattern of black spots on a photographic film. And what the Braggs realised was that from that pattern of black spots, you can actually work backwards and work out the arrangement. atoms and molecules in the crystal so they called this technique x-ray crystallography they'd actually discovered this they developed this method a few years earlier 1912 1913 while bragg was cavendish professor of physics at leeds and the two of them were there in the lab freezing cold lab working until the wee small hours of the morning using their x-ray method to look at the the structure of simple substances like diamond and ice common table salt 1915 Bragg had left Leeds, he'd gone down to London. But down in London, he then he wanted to up his game. Right? So until that point, he'd been using his method to work out the crystalline structure of these very simple compounds. Now he wanted to know: could his method tell us anything about the much bigger structures that we find in biological systems? And after his few years in that he'd spent in, in Leeds, he had one very clear idea of one particular substance in mind, and that was wool. He was thinking along economic lines because ever since the end of the 19th century, there'd been this, this fear that Britain was going to be left standing by its economic rivals, chiefly Germany, um, because what Germany excelled at was in applying basic science to industry. and There was a real feeling that Britain needed to emulate the German example, and after his years in Yorkshire, Bragg felt that the textiles industry could reap massive benefits from x-ray crystallography. In fact, be, before he left Leeds, he advised the textile department at Leeds, he said, what you need to do is find yourself a keen young man who can apply my x-ray crystallography to the study of textile fibres. Now, we've got to cut Brag a little bit of slack here. He's a product of his time, so his imagination wasn't elastic enough to accommodate the idea that a keen young woman could do the job just as well. But uh, down in London... He found his keen young man, and his name was William Asprey. Bragg gave Asprey the task of applying X-ray crystallography to the study of wool fibres. I should say, this was not Asprey's first encounter with X-rays. He'd encountered them once before, and his encounter had not been a happy one, because he'd served in the army during the First World War. Hadn't been posted to France because of a, an appendix problem, so they'd, they'd, he'd been posted to Ireland, where he'd worked in the Royal Army Medical Corps, and... He used to boast in later life that thanks to x-rays, he'd, he'd earned the somewhat dubious accolade of getting two, not one, but two court-martials, one of which was for uh, doing a bit of DIY, a DIY repair job on an x-ray generator equipment, a bit of a Blue Peter job. Uh, he got it working, but his superior officers were, were not impressed. So that was his first encounter with x-rays. But Bragg gave him the task of using x-rays to study the structure of wool fibres. But, of course, the best place to do that was not down in London. It was... A few hundred miles up the north, back in Leeds, because ever since the Middle Ages, when the monks Kirkstall Abbey in Leeds had been raising sheep and selling their fleeces to foreign wool merchants, wool and textiles had come to be at the heart of the Leeds economy. So, 1928, Asprey came up to Leeds to take up the newly created post lecture in textile physics, and it was not a move about which he was very enthusiastic. You've got to remember, this is a young this is a young scientist starting out in their career. They're working with a Nobel laureate. And all of a sudden, they're being told, get yourself off to the provinces and you're going to work on wool for industrial reasons. Now, to, to, to Asprey starting out at that time, it seemed like his career options were closing down. He, he wrote to uh, one of his colleagues and friends, Chris Log for J.D. Bernal. He said, I feel like I'm going into the wilderness. He couldn't have been more wrong.
1: So now Asprey is on the scene and he obviously isn't very happy but he's about to play a really big role in his field, isn't he?
2: Yeah, he. I mean, he pioneered the use of X-ray crystallography, yeah, to, to biological fibres. Um, proteins can either be, they can be fibrous, non-soluble, or they can be soluble. And his mate down at Cambridge, who, who'd also worked with Bragg, Bernal, basically, he was doing the soluble proteins. Asprey's up at Leeds doing the insoluble, fibrous ones. Um, but I think, you see, what his work on wool did it answered a really fundamental question that had baffled biochemists for ages. And that was, well, what, what exactly are proteins anyway, right? Structurally, right? And the best way to understand the importance of what he did with his work on wool is to take a little, a quick little detour into outer space. So it was only a couple of years ago, 2016, And scientists got really excited when the Rosetta probe, which had been sent out to observe this distant comet, and the scientists got really excited because Rosetta, the instruments on board, detected traces of this little chemical called glycine on the comet. And the reason that that got everyone's pulses racing was glycine belongs to a class of chemicals called amino acids, and it's about 20 different amino acids. And amino acids are the chemical Lego bricks of proteins, right? They're, they're the building blocks of proteins. And proteins are, you know, they're more than just a tasty slab of steak or tofu on your dinner plate. They are nature's nano machines. They are the, the workhorses of living, living things. So, for example, the, the protein hemoglobin in the blood carries oxygen around the blood. You know, you've got myosin protein in your muscle. You've got the rhodopsin protein in the back of your eye. Turns um, light energy into the electrical energy of a nervous impulse. The enzymes that catalyse all the chemical reactions in our body, they're all proteins, right? So proteins are absolutely fundamental. Now, chemists at the time, biochemists at the time, knew they knew that proteins were made up. Firstly, they knew that proteins in molecular terms were absolutely huge great big juggernauts of molecules. They also knew that they were made up of these smaller amino acids like the glycine that the Rosetta probe found. But the puzzle was, how can these small building blocks make these huge, big molecules? And and nobody knew. What Asprey's work on the keratin proteins in wool showed was that those proteins were great big, long chains of amino acids joined together, like beads strung together to form a necklace. So if you imagine... Your 20 different amino acids are like beads of different shapes, colours and sizes and they're strung, they're physically joined together to form a great big long molecular necklace and that's the protein. And today we know that what makes, say, the haemoglobin protein different from, say, the insulin protein is it's not just the specific types of beads in the haemoglobin necklace but it's the, the linear order in which they're strung together. But Asprey's discovery that proteins are an attractive raw material to the textile industry. The stretchiness of wool, summarised rather wittily by uh, one of Asprey's uh, colleagues, Lindo Patterson, who said um, amino acids in chains are the cause, or so the X-ray explains, of the stretching of wool and its strength when you pull and show why it shrinks when it rains. Uh, Patterson was also a mathematician. It's to be hoped he didn't give up the day job of being a mathematician in favour of being a poet, but his his limerick kind of explains quite nicely Asprey's discovery there. And that discovery really put Asprey on the map. It established him as a leading international authority in applying x-rays to biological fibres. And so then, emboldened by that discovery, he began to cast his neck wider, look at other protein fibres in muscle or the flagella of bacteria that help them swim through liquid medium. Possibly, I think, one of the best x-ray pictures he ever took of the protein fibre it was from keratin in human hair and that the particular lock of hair from which it had come is said to have come from the head of mozart how on earth the university of leeds came into the possession of uh, a lock of mozart's hair is another story but i think there's a wonderful poetry to this because asprey's other great passion besides structural biology or molecular biology as he began to popularize it that's this idea that the best way of understanding living systems is through the shape of these giant molecules and how they change shape. His other great passion besides molecular biology was classical music, and Mozart was one of his favourite composers. And the two passions converged quite nicely, and he he once described these giant, long, fibrous chains in biological molecules as being nature's chosen instrument in the symphony of creation, which I, I do think it's wonderful when when scientists get poetic like that. As he cast his net wider, he needed more expertise in his lab. He needed somebody who was really, really good at x-ray crystallography. And he wrote to Lawrence Bragg, son of William Bragg, who by now was a professor at Manchester, and said, can you recommend anyone? And as it happened, uh, Lawrence Bragg could. And that somebody was a young scientist by the name of Florence Bell.
3: And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
1: And now I think it's really important that we stop here in the story for a moment to talk about Florence Bell. Who was she? What role did she play?
2: So for a long time, Rosalind Franklin was was cast as being like the unsung heroine of DNA. So 1952, Rosalind Franklin at King's College London with her PhD student Raymond Gosling took an X-ray diffraction photograph of DNA that... They wrote in their they they called it in their lab books just photo fifty one. They gave it this very modest name, photo fifty one. There's a plaque outside King's College London today that hails it as being one of the most important photographs ever taken. And James Watson certainly thought so because when he was shown Franklin and Gosling's photograph for the first time under somewhat controversial circumstances, his reaction was dramatic. He said, "The instant I saw the picture, uh, my mouth fell open and my pulse began to race." Now, that's because the particular pattern of spots made by the scattered X-rays in that picture gives rise to this really striking cross pattern. And Watson knew that only a molecule that was coiled up into a helix would scatter the X-rays to give you that cross pattern. Now, it's important to say, photo 51 was not the only clue that helped Watson and Crick solve the double helical structure of DNA. They needed other clues from Franklin's work. But its psychological effect was important. As Watson said, it galvanised us into action. Now, if you know the story, you'll know that for many years, Franklin's crucial contributions, not just photo 51, but other x-ray work she did showing that DNA is uh, two strands, not one, and that the two strands run in opposite directions. um, Her contribution was overlooked and neglected for a long time, and and she didn't get a very gracious treatment in uh, Watson's memoir, The Double Helix. But... In later years, um, she's got a Royal Mint commemorative 50p coin uh, in her honour. I think next year she's going to have a Mars rover named after her landing on the red planet. And there's also been a hit West End play a few years ago called Photo 51, for which the actress Nicole Kidman won an award for her performance as Franklin. So thankfully, Franklin is no longer the unsung heroine of DNA. I think that mantle now passes to Florence Bell. She studied natural sciences at Girton College, Cambridge, and she'd stayed in Cambridge for a little while and learnt X-ray crystallography. And then she'd come up to Manchester to learn X-ray crystallography from Lawrence Bragg, who, with his father, had won the Nobel Prize. Uh, and then, of course, Lawrence Bragg got this letter from Asprey. Could he recommend anyone? Yes, he could. So I think it's 1937. Florence Bell crossed the Pennines to come and work in Leeds. The, her reasons for her move were not entirely scientific. She was engaged to a doctor in Leeds at the time, but... Uh, She never ended up marrying him. So she came to Asprey's lab, and Asprey very quickly recognised her talent and her skill, which I always think is rather ironic, given some of his views. And I'll read you. 1943, he wrote a letter to Lawrence Bragg regarding the election of women to the Royal Society. And here's what he says. I suppose the suggestion was bound to come up sooner or later that women should be put up for the Royal Society. And once that's accepted, I don't think you could find a woman candidate more likely than Mrs Lonsdale to be successful. So this is Kathleen Lonsdale. She was another X-ray crystallographer. I think she was the first woman to be elected fellow of the Royal Society. Asbury went on to say, I should put her at quite the best woman scientist that I know, but that probably is as far as I'm prepared to go because I must confess I'm one of those people that still maintain that there is a creative spark in the male that is absent from women, even though the latter do so often such marvellously conscientious and thorough work after the spark has been struck. It's ironic because holding those views in Florence Bell, he met his match because he uh, he, actually, he actually called her his devil's advocate because Florence Bell had this willingness to challenge him. Because Asprey had this tendency sometimes to get overexcited and let his ideas go racing ahead of what his data was telling him. Florence Bell had the the talent and the diplomatic skill of being able to rein him in um, and sober him down a bit. But she was also an amazingly talented um, X-ray crystallographer, so much so that 1939, the Institute of Physics held a, a conference in Leeds and Asprey got Bell to basically get up and present the work of his lab. And she made a splash in the headlines, but sadly... It wasn't her science that caught the eye of the local press. So the local newspaper at the time reported on Bell's presentation with the stunning headline, um, Woman Scientist Explains. This implicit sense of shock makes it sound as if they've just discovered some some zoo- new zoological specimen previously unknown to, to science. And, and it, again, the irony is brilliant because only a year earlier... Florence Bell had used x-ray crystallography in Asprey's lab to make the very first attempt to study the structure of another kind of biological fibre, not proteins this time, but what was then known as thymonucleic acid, what we today know as DNA. So in 1938, Florence Bell had made the first attempt to solve a structure of DNA. From that, she'd come up with a model of what DNA might look like. All right, today we know a lot of that model was wrong, But she got some really important things right. Most importantly, however, what she showed by doing that was she showed you could use this X-ray method to reveal the regular ordered structure of DNA. And I think that in doing that, she very much laid the foundations for the later work of Rosalind Franklin and Photo 51. In fact, in Bell's model she managed to actually measure the distance between the chemicals called the bases. So if you imagine DNA, imagine your DNA as a double spiral staircase and the bases form the rungs of that staircase. Today we know it's the order of the bases that carry the genetic information. Um, Bell was able to measure the distance, 3.4 angstroms. I think that's about 0.34 nanometers. And Watson actually says in his memoir, the double helix that that measurement gave him and Crick a really crucial foothold when they began their own work on DNA. And I think the other the other really important thing is, you know, today, I bet if you were to go out onto the street and take a straw poll, most people would know that DNA does something really important in biology. Um, probably no thanks to the success of blockbusters like Jurassic Park and the X-Men and all the Marvel stuff, you know, the double helix is always cropping up there. Back in the 20s, the 30s, the 40s, it was very different. Most scientists thought proteins carried genetic information. DNA was just thought to be this pretty dull, boring molecule. Asprey and Bell thought differently. And in fact, Asprey was one of the first people to really sit up and take notice of an experiment that suggested DNA might be doing something very, very important. That was an experiment done in 1944 by US scientist Oswald Avery. He showed that DNA on its own could pass on the ability to cause cause disease in bacteria and Asprey was one of the first people to get very excited by that. He wrote to Avery describing it as, this is one of the most remarkable discoveries of our time. Can I have some of this stuff, please, for work? Avery never sent it, but it doesn't matter because Avery's work fired Asprey up with a dream Uh, and that dream was that after the Second World War he would establish Leeds as a national... National Centre at the cutting edge of this new science that he called molecular biology. Unfortunately, his dream was pretty much shattered. One reason being that by this time, Florence Bell had had to leave his lab. She'd been um, summoned for war service. Asprey wrote to the war office begging them that she'd be allowed to stay in his lab because she was so important, but it was no good. So she joined the Women's Auxiliary Air Force. University of Leeds kept her position open, hoping that she'd come back, but she wrote to the registrar saying, "Thanks very much." but basically bigger forces than science had intervened in her life. While she was doing her war service, she'd met a captain in the U.S. Army, married him, and she emigrated to the US. And that was pretty much the end of Florence Bell and DNA uh, and her work on DNA. Not quite for Asprey. His work his work on DNA continued but um, very much amidst the ruins of this, this grand dream that he'd, he'd held to establish Leeds as a massive centre in molecular biology. He'd, the University of Leeds had allowed him to have a new institute, but it was a, a far cry from cutting-edge facilities. He found himself in what was basically a converted old terraced Victorian residential property with leaky pipes that meant it was prone to flooding, dodgy electrics, uneven floors that made the delicate scientific instruments wobble. And he even there is even a letter in which Asprey is writing to the Superintendent of Domestic Services at the University of Leeds saying, could we please have a regular supply of freshly laundered tea towels? Um, I don't think that that is where he was expecting to find himself.
1: So I want to carry on talking about... Asprey's work with DNA. Now, I think obviously many listeners are probably going to be quite familiar with Watson and Crick and now Franklin as well. But it seems that Asprey got rather close to making the discovery as well. This brings us back to this point about him almost getting the Nobel Prize. Now, tell us what exactly happened here?
2: So, Florence Bell's left the lab, and that's a blow to him. And then he's had this blow as well, that his dream of establishing this um, this new Institute of Molecular Biology. In fact, the, the University of Leeds wouldn't even actually allow him to call it molecular biology. So there was some some Byzantine academic politics here, um, which brings to mind that quote that's often ascribed to Henry Kissinger, that the reason that academic politics is, is so vicious is because there's so very little at stake. I think it's Henry Kissinger who said that. Yeah, there was an eminent biologist who basically said... Well, Asprey might know a lot about molecules, but he didn't know anything about biology. I think they felt that their intellectual territory was being encroached upon. So they said, no, you've got to call it, I think he had to call it something like the Department of Biomolecular Structure. And so he's there struggling away with his flooding and writing for tea towels and dodgy electrics. But despite all that, one of his research assistants, Alwyn Baton, carried on with the DNA work. And in 1951, Baton obtained a set of X-ray pictures of DNA that were identical to the ones that would be taken a year later by Franklin and Gosling, the photo 51. Now, what's ironic about that is that round about the time that Baton was taking these stunning pictures, Asprey was away at a scientific conference in Naples. Now, also present at that meeting was young James Watson. Uh, And he was starting to get interested in DNA, and he knew that the secret to cracking DNA structure was X-ray crystallography. So Watson knew he needed to talk to somebody who knew X-ray crystallography. And he's got two options. There's Asprey, the elder statesman of the field. Or well, there's another scientist, Morris Wilkins, a New Zealander, who's just started taking some X-ray pictures of DNA, taking his cues from Asprey, taking his inspiration from Asprey, because um, Wilkins had talked to Asprey about this. So Watson's got a choice. Who does he talk to? Asprey, the elder statesman, or Wilkins, the new kid on the block? First of all, he thinks about Asprey. But his encounter with Asprey is an absolute crushing disappointment. He never even got as far as talking to him, I don't think. He basically looked at Asprey, who by then was this renowned figure in the field of X-ray crystallography, and he sees Asprey at the meeting, holding court with a group of people around him, hanging on his every word, And Asprey's telling jokes, and Watson is just not impressed. He Basically, he just sees a man who he deems his best years are well behind him, and as a result of that, he's now just reduced to trying to make people laugh by telling really bad, as Watson described them, off-colour jokes. And as a result of that, Watson just thinks, do you know what? I'm not going to bother. And he goes off and he finds Wilkins at the meeting and he talks to Maurice Wilkins. And as a result of that interaction, 1962, Watson, Crick and Wilkins share the Nobel Prize for the discovery of the structure of DNA. Now, you think to yourself, how differently might things have played out if Watson could have gritted his teeth and put up with Asprey's really poor jokes and gone over to talk to him about X-ray work on DNA? Might it have been the case that when Watson arrived in Cambridge later that year, might he have jumped on the train, made a trip up to Leeds, and Asprey might have shown him Baton's stunning photographs that were identical to those taken by Franklin and Gosling. Now, there's another great what-if here, because the other great what-if is, what if Asprey's pleas to the War Office to let Florence Bell remain in his lab had been successful and she'd still been on the scene? I don't think that an X-ray crystallographer of her calibre would have let Asprey do nothing with Baton's pictures. Because here's the thing, Asprey's reaction to Baton's pictures could not have been more different to Watson's reaction to Franklin's picture. Watson had said when he saw Franklin's picture, yeah, my, my mouth fell open, my pulse began to race. Asprey's reaction couldn't have be more different. He never did anything with Baton's pictures He never published them in a paper, never presented them at a meeting. They were just filed away. And I reckon if Florence Bell had still been on the scene, that would never have happened. She would have pushed him to follow those up. I'm not saying that they would have gone the whole way and solved the double helical structure of DNA because they were lacking two crucial pieces of information that Watson and Crick had, which they'd got from Franklin's work, namely that DNA is two strands, not one, and the strands run in opposite directions. But the other intriguing what if, is it's worth remembering that Watson and Crick had a rival breathing down their necks, and that was the American chemist Linus Pauling, Nobel laureate. And he too was trying to solve the structure of DNA, trying to do a slightly different approach to Watson and Crick. What Pauling desperately needed and what he didn't have was access to good quality x-ray diffraction pictures of DNA. Now, Pauling wasn't just a colleague of Asprey, he was also a really good friend of Asprey. When when Pauling was barred by the US State Department from visiting Europe, um, they wouldn't give him a visa because they thought he was a suspected communist. This was the time of the uh, 1950s, Joe McCarthy's Communist Witch Hunt. Um Asprey wrote championing, uh, Fighting Pauling's corner. And when Pauling was eventually allowed to visit Europe, he called in and spent he called in and visited Asprey at his home in Headingley. And so you imagine the two of them are sitting there by the fire, sipping whiskey as they probably were, and Asprey's, at that moment, is sitting on this stunning x-ray picture of DNA. And you just think, what if he had said to Pauling at that time, hey, check out this photograph of DNA, this new photograph of DNA that, uh, that my man Baton's got. Then Pauling might have gone back to Caltech at Pasadena with renewed fire in his belly, fired up by that picture. Who knows, it might have been... Pauling, Asprey and Bell sharing a Nobel Prize. But, you know, it's, it's the path not taken, isn't it?
1: Why do you think we should maybe dwell on this counterfactual history?
2: I, I think counterfactual... I, I know counterfactual history is controversial. Some historians think, well, it's just a waste of time. But I think you can actually use it by exploring what didn't happen. You can actually shed invaluable light on the factors that were at play in what did happen Just to diverge a little bit, it has often struck me that... I think here's a... nothing to do with history of science, but I think here's quite an interesting use of a counterfactual. When the Berlin Wall came down in 1989 and the Cold War came to an end, I think as we look back now, you see that there was a massive sense of triumphalism in the West, and that led to a sense of inevitability, that victory in the Cold War had been somehow inevitable. And, of course, sadly now, tragically... We're seeing this is not the case. And I just wonder whether, had we been more willing to indulge in counterfactuals at the time and think to ourselves, let's try and imagine some other possible scenarios in which way this could play out, it may have prevented us from slipping into a certain sort of triumphalism and complacency. Sorry, that's a little little aside there, the use of counterfactuals in history.
1: Back to William Asbury. He seems to have got a little bit lost in this story amongst the achievements of Watson and Crick in particular. But he did far more than that, and there are other achievements that we probably should tout here, aren't there?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think if you leave the story as Asprey being the man telling really rubbish jokes at a conference in Naples, you might be tempted just to dismiss him as, you know, the bloke who obtained this crucial clue to the structure of DNA and did nothing with it. But I don't think that's where the story should end. And I think that's kind of an unfair judgment because he did do more. Firstly, he was a phenomenally talented popularizer of science. He could talk to specialist audiences at scientific conferences, but at the same time, he was going out there and addressing lay audiences. So, for example, he addressed a lay audience, um, a, a professional body of hairdressers, And he explained to them in molecular terms what's happening when you perm hair. So in terms of protein structures, protein fibres changing shape, and this was his real talent that he could do this. There's that line in that that Rudyard Kipling poem, you know, if you can walk with kings and keep the common touch. And um, uh, Asprey was the exemplar of that. He would often give BBC radio, radio talks. And one visual aid that he had when he gave these talks was what I think may well be I'm trying not to use the word legacy but perhaps his lasting is I'm going to have to use it his lasting scientific legacy and it was a rather unusual overcoat and the reason it was unusual was it wasn't woven out of wool or conventional textile fibers it was woven from monkey nut proteins or peanut proteins Uh, made for some very amused headlines in the Daily Mail of 1944. They they ran the headline, His Coat's Made of Peanuts. So it goes back to Asprey's work on wool fibres, when I said he discovered that the proteins in wool could change shape. Uh, And he began doing some work on the main protein component of seeds. Now, if you remember, I said that proteins are big, long chains of amino acids. So in these seed proteins, the chains are coiled up, if you like, into a 3D ball. And with some collaborators, Asprey realised that by chemical treatment, you could basically unravel the coiling into that ball and refold the protein chain into a long, insoluble fibre. And by this act of molecular origami, if you like, what he and his collaborators hoped was that what you might be able to do is use the seed protein whose shape you've refolded into a long, insoluble fibre, use it as a cheap and abundant substitute for wool in the textile industry. And the company ICI liked this idea so much that they actually built a pilot production plant near Ardea in Scotland, and they began producing this fibre that they called Ardil, and they were producing it from the main protein component of peanuts or monkey nuts. Because I think at that time, there were about 8 million tonnes being shipped into the UK so, the thinking was what you had here it was a really cheap and abundant uh, new raw material, and as proof of principle, they made Asprey this entire overcoat out of it now, what I think's interesting about this is round about the time that this was going on in the cinemas was the classic Ealing comedy starring Sir Alec Guinness, the man in the white suit now I guess. Younger listeners will know Sir Alec Guinness uh, as being Obi-Wan Kenobi in the Star Wars films, but, uh, you know, he's got a long track track record before he was swinging a lightsaber around, right? So in The Man in the White Suit, Alec Guinness plays uh, Sidney Stratton, this idealistic young scientist. He's a textile scientist, and he's invented this fibre that never needs cleaning. So he's basically made this entire suit out of this revolutionary new textile fibre. And I I just wonder, every time I watch that film... I just think it's really interesting that that film came out round about the same time as Asprey and his monkey nut coat. And you just wonder, was that a case of art imitating life? Was there any kind of connection between the two? I, I don't know. I'd love to think there was. If you know the film, you'll know that mm, things don't work out quite as well as Sidney Stratton hoped. And nor did they for Ardil. unfortunately. It, it didn't turn out to be The Salvation of the British textile industry. There are some wonderful letters in which Asprey's writing to ICI basically saying the coats fall into bits. What became of the monkey nut coat? We we don't know. We don't know. It, it may be lying in some dusty cupboard. I don't know. Maybe maybe moths have devoured it by now. But what I think the monkey nut coat is a wonderful example of is Asprey's key idea of molecular biology, the idea that the key to understanding living systems is to understand the shape of these giant molecules from which they're made. And that is a really important idea because it has allowed us to understand how hemoglobin can carry oxygen around the blood. It's allowed us to understand how how muscles contract, how bacteria can swim. More recently, I mean, an example that's had quite poignant relevance to us all in recent years, it explains how the now infamous spike glycoprotein on the surface of the SARS-CoV-2 virus can bind to and infect human cells, allow the virus to actually enter human cells. It's all to do with proteins changing shape. So I think the monkey nut coat is a wonderful example of that. And I think that's why Asprey's story is worth, that's why it's worth telling today. And I think, you know, this year Leeds is celebrating 2023, it's Leeds Year of Culture um, I think, as, as well as as well as Year of Culture, you know, as well as Kaiser Chiefs and Chumbawamba and what have you, um, Leeds has got other good reasons to be proud. Particularly through the work of William Asprey, Florence Bell. I think even Chumbawamba's line from Tub Thumping, "I get knocked down, but I get up again," was probably all too true for Asprey from the uh, the difficulties he faced. Because throughout his career, he was fighting this uphill battle to win funding. In fact, towards the end of his life, he actually be- he was becoming quite disillusioned by science, saying he, he wished he'd spent more time playing his-, his violin. I did chuckle when, towards the end of last year, there was a, a piece in one of the broadsheets, it might have been the Guardian, or the Observer, I think, saying that um, people are now travelling from as far afield as London to come up to the Leeds suburb of Headingley, more famous for-, for Test cricket, for the weekend, to participate in the uh, now notorious Otley Run student pub crawl. I wish they were coming up from Headingley to come and see the plaque on Kirkster Lane opposite the cricket ground where Asprey lived.
1: So we've looked at a lot of Asprey's scientific achievements, his maybe missed opportunities, covered quite a bit. What would you like to leave listeners with?
2: I guess I'd like to leave them with a sense that his idea of understanding living systems in terms of the shape, in terms of the molecular origami of these big molecules they're made up of, is so important today. So if you look at, so today in the Asprey Centre for Structural Biology at Leeds, for example, there's work going on to develop new drugs to target bacteria that have developed um, antibiotic resistance. And again, it's all based on the idea of the shapes of the drugs and the proteins they fit into. His monkey nut coat, I think, is an idea whose time has come once more. So uh, again, I think it was might have been in the... Guardian towards the end of last year, there was the animal welfare charity, PETA, were announcing, I think it was either a $1 million or £1 million prize for anyone who could develop vegan alternative textile fibres that were mo- that were less environmentally damaging. Um, I know, I'd, I'd like to nominate Asprey as a, a, a posthumous uh, contender for that prize with the monkey nut coat there. Um, I'm, I'm assuming that growing monkey nuts is, is environmentally friendly. I, I may be wrong there. But I guess the last thought was a more general thought about science. Now, just going back to The Man in the White Suit, if you know the film, oh, spoiler alert here, by the way, you know that at the climax, Sydney Stratton, this idealistic young scientist, is challenged by um, a laundry lady, a washerwoman, Uh, and her problem is you've just invented a textile fibre that doesn't need to be cleaned. Right, well, where does that leave me and my livelihood? And she says, you know, you scientists, you just never think, you never think about the consequences of what you do, do you? In a wonderful parallel to to, to that scene, Asprey himself was challenged as well. I think he'd been on BBC Radio talking uh, about the work he did, maybe even talking about his monkey nut coat. And he was challenged by um, a listener and he wrote in response to her. He said, please don't think too severely of science, I beg of you. True science is a wonderful thing. And my work is the most wonderful thing about me, the most wonderful thing that I know. It's endlessly gratifying, endlessly moving to search day after day, night after night, into the nature of things, into the nature of our very selves. The science I know and practice is the crowning glory of human culture. I classify it with music and literature and every other beautiful thing in life. Believe me, science is not just bombs, luxuries, wireless and whatnot. It is man's greatest intellectual adventure his journey into the unknown. And I think that's the one I'd like to leave listeners with.
0: That was Kirsten Hall. He's visiting fellow at the University of Leeds. Kirsten's book, The Man in the Monkey Nut Coat, William Asprey and How Wool Wove a Forgotten Road to the Double Helix, is out now published by Oxford University Press. If this scientific drama has piqued your interest, then be sure to check out Kirsten's previous episode with us, all about the race to discover insulin. Just search for The Birth of Insulin to bring that up. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Brittany Colley.